Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Caleb Duvick. I'm one of the pastors here at Two Cities Church, and I'm excited today because we're going to be closing out a short series that we've been doing on John 17. And John 17 is commonly known as Jesus's high priestly prayer. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been diving into this chapter. And the first week, Pastor Kyle talked about the first part where Jesus prays for himself. And in the second week, Pastor Kyle talked about Jesus's prayer for his 11 disciples around him. And today, we are going to go into the final part of this chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up to chapter 17, starting in verse 20. And we're going to see the the prayer of Jesus shift once again. And the people that Jesus begins to pray for in this part of John 17 is you and me. Jesus prays in his last moments before his death. His eyes are fixed 2,000 years down the road, and they are on us. And Jesus takes a moment to pray for each and every single one of us. And these seven verses are also the last recorded words before Jesus begins to go to the cross in the book of John. And so not only is this a prayer of Jesus for you, but it's his last words for you. And typically when you think of last words, the thing that people are going to be talking about is what's important to them. And so this week I was looking at a few examples of famous last words, and one I came across was the the French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. Any fans? Okay, maybe not. Well, anyway, Jean-Philippe, he was going to his deathbed, And a priest knew how much he loved music, and he decided, I'm going to sing for him, you know, just as he he passes away. And so he shows up and he begins to sing, and Jean-Philippe responds by saying, what the devil do you mean to sing to me, priest? You're out of tune. (laughs) So music is pretty important to him. And then, of course, there's the legendary Jack Daniel, whose famous last words were, just one more drink, please. And so those are some humorous examples of last words, but many of you may have even been in that position before where you were with someone when they were saying their last things in this world. And the things that they're going to talk about and that you're typically going to hear is is how much they love somebody. Or maybe the regret that they are not going to be around for someone's life going forward. And so they're going to talk about their hopes and their dreams for that person. And if that's true, man, that Jesus' last words are this. There's going to be weight. There's going to be importance. Don't you want to know what he has to say to us today? Don't you want to know what it is that he's praying for us? The thing that he prays for you, the thing that he speaks to all of us is this, unity. Jesus prays for and talks about our unity at the very end. And read with me in verse 20. See if you can pick up on this language of unity. Jesus says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. So church, the big idea that Jesus wants us to walk away with in this passage today is that the church's unity is Jesus' priority. The church's unity is Jesus' priority. And the way that we would define unity is when people's differences take a back seat for the purpose of something greater. And when we look at the world today, I would go as far to say we probably don't see a whole lot of that going on, right? We don't see a lot of unity being lived out in our world 
In a study that was done last year, it found that 84% of Americans firmly believe that we live in a very divided country. They say that even more than that, it is far more divided than it was even 10 years ago. A lot of social commentators are saying that we live in the most divided time that our country has ever experienced. And so Jesus is praying for that, but not only that, Jesus is praying for us because he knows, you know what, that just is not something that happens out in the world. That's something that is in our lives too. It's something that the church needs. And so Jesus prays for the unity of the church because you know that this is true. I mean, this is the reason that some of you have a sibling who has not called you in the last two years. For some of you, this is the reason that a child has walked away from their faith in the church. For some of us, this is the reason why we get sick every time we think about having to go home and spend Thanksgiving with our family. This is why your coworkers don't look forward to having you on the schedule when they have to work with you. This is why for some of us and our spouses, when we're home, it can feel more like a war zone than a place of peace. And so God knows that this is true, and he is calling the church to something different. He's saying, I don't want my church to just simply be a microcosm of the world that's around it, because what the divided world needs the most is a united church. That's what God is calling us to. God wants us to be a church that is united. He wants it to be a beautiful picture of something different, and he wants us to see how it is that we can get it. And so what is it that he's calling us to? What does this unity look like? I first think it might be helpful just to say, okay, here's what it doesn't look like. Because there's a lot of things that unity is, but there's a lot of things that unity is not. And so when Jesus is calling us to unity, he's calling us to unity, not uniformity. There's a big difference between those two things. Unity is a home. Uniformity is a prison. Think about prison. It is a beautiful example of uniformity because literally you get a uniform when you go there, right? You, you have the same size cell. You have the same cot. You have the same food. You have the same schedule. Everyone is the exact same in a prison. But Jesus is saying, I want the church to be something different. I think that there can be uniformity even with differences among the people of the church. And so you can look at our church today and you can see that kind of unity in spite of differences. You can see people that when they come and worship on Sunday, they dress up in a suit. And then you have people who dress up in shorts and flip-flops, right? There's differences there. You can have people who differ when it comes to worship. You have people that might love hymns and then you like have people who love modern things. Homes and families can have differences. You can look at schooling and families that love public or private or homeschool. We can even come together and be a church and have differences when it comes to theology. We can have differences when it comes to secondary and tertiary issues and still come together in Jesus Christ. And so you can come to church and see differences. If you go to a church and you don't see any differences, what you're walking into is a cult, okay? And so if you walk in and everyone's doing the same things, they're all wearing the same things, they're eating the same things and sipping on the same Kool-Aid, all right, what you need to do is run, because that's not a church, that's a cult. And so Jesus is calling us to unity, not uniformity. Jesus is also not calling us to be one big gigantic church. You know, people have read this passage historically and have said, well, this is God calling all the different churches to come together. God's saying, the Protestants and the Catholics, come on together, guys. 
He's saying the Methodists and the Unitarians and the Baptists, let's come together and make just one big denomination. But that can't be what Jesus is talking about because mergers have never made someone stop and then believe in the truths of the gospel. In February of 2019 this year, BB&T and SunTrust came together and they decided they were going to merge to make one big bank. How many people do you know stopped and stared and said, behold, what love they have for each other, right? That's, that's not what mergers do. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus is also not talking about unity for the sake of unity. Unity is not an end in itself. Unity is something that is always pointing us to something greater. That's like, as the church, we believe that marriage is a picture of something greater. It's the picture of Jesus Christ and the relationship that he has with his bride, the church. That's what marriage exists for, is to point to a greater reality. And that's what unity is supposed to do as well. And so what kind, of, what kind of unity is Jesus talking about? What is he praying for? Well, the first thing that we see Jesus pray for when it comes to unity is he prays that we would be united around a message. Jesus prays that we would be united around a message because God's mission is moved through a message. His mission is moved through a message, and we see this in verse 20 when Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. And when he says that, he's referring to the 11 apostles who are sitting around him. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see, we see Jesus praying evangelistically. Jesus is not content just with the 11 men around him. He says, I do not pray for these only. And Jesus wants more and more and more people to come to a saving faith in him. And here's the incredible thing. If you are here and you are a believer today sitting in one of our seats, it's because God answered Jesus' prayer. Amen? You are here and you are a Christian as a result of Jesus' prayer. And if Jesus praying for the lost is important to him, then it should be important to us too. We should be a church that is united around continually and consistently praying for the lost. Because if you see a church that is consistently praying missionally, you are also going to see a church that is living missionally. And so what would it look like for us to be a church that prays consistently? Well, we can do that in our community groups. And as you get together with your groups, would you find ways to pray for the loss that God has put in your lives? We can do this as a DNA group. We can do this as a whole church. In fact, we would invite you to come back here on Monday night, September 16th, because we are having a night of prayer as a church. And one of the things that we consistently do during these times is we pray for the lost around us. We we pray for the lost in Winston and around the world. And so let us be a church that's united in praying for the lost to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And not only pray, but we can be people that pray with confidence, Because here, what Jesus says in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. You see, Jesus is giving his apostles confidence that through their prayers and through their ministry, they will see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see a beautiful picture of this later on in Acts 18, when the Lord Jesus comes to Paul one night as he is out on mission, and Paul And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. 
And Paul stayed there for a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. You see, what God was telling Paul is not saying, hey, I have a bunch of believers who are already here in this city. He's saying, there are people who are going to respond to your message. And so go and say it. And in the same way, Jesus tells us the same thing, that he has people here in Winston-Salem. They're in the house next to you. They're in the desk next to you. They're in the cubicle next to you or the elliptical next to you. They might even be sitting right across the kitchen table from you. But we can have confidence that as we pray for these things and as we unite around this message that people will respond because God has them here. They are all around us. And not only that, we get to play a part in that because God reminds the apostles here that he is going to use their message. He says, I do not ask for these only, but those who will believe in me through their word. God has intimately invited us to be a part of this mission. And he's given us everything that we need to make it happen. You see, the apostles and the early church, they believed that the message, that the gospel was the power of God for salvation. They had everything that they needed for people to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They had everything that they needed to be able to see transformation in the life of people. And so they united around it because why would you not? It is the power to make those things happen. And in the same way, we get to have the same mission. We have the same exact message today, the same message that saves, the same message that transforms. And so God is saying, as a church, we have to be united around this message of God's word and the gospel. And so what does it look like for us as a church to be united around this message? Well, number one, the way that we can be united around this message is that we don't move on from it. This message is something that we never move on from. God's word and the gospel have to be a central part of everything that we do. It's the diving board and the pool. It's where we start and it's where we live. And so that means that all the things that we do as a church are grounded in it. Whether it's the preaching or whether it's the worship or whether it's our ministry, we never move on from it. This is where we stay. But it's also nothing that we, we, we don't elevate anything above it. We don't elevate anything over the message. And so, you know what? Our senses don't surpass it. Our traditions, they don't trump it. The words of others don't overshadow it. And it doesn't matter if it's culture that's speaking into it, or a friend, or a family, even a pastor. God's word is above all of those things. And maybe that's a challenge for you guys. Maybe you need to hear you coming on Sundays and receiving God's word is not enough. God is inviting each of us to tap directly back into the source. You personally need to be united around God's message because he's speaking to you in his word if you would just go to it. And so we don't elevate anything else above this message. And lastly, we don't water it down. and We don't change it. That's what it looks like to be united around it is we don't water it down. We don't change it. One of the things we say here all the time at Two Cities Church is that if you encounter something in God's word that confronts you, you can either edit it or you can change your mind. But we believe if you are a Christian, that second one is the only option that we have because we cannot water it down. We cannot change it because if we as a church do any of those things, if we ever move on from it, if we ever elevate anything over it, if we ever water it down, you need to go through those doors and you need to go somewhere else. Because a church 
that is not united around God's word has no meaningful impact in the world when it comes to the mission of God. And so God is saying, be united around my word, and we have a promise that as we do that, we will see people come to Christ. We will see people's lives transformed. And so we unite ourselves around that, but that's the starting place. God wants to start by being united, but if you ever want to see your friends or your families or your neighbors ever come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, this message is something that we have to share It's not enough just to be united. We have to share God's word with the people around us. And here's what I'm not talking about. Here's some of the things that we try to do. Some of us try to share God's message by cranking up Caleb in our minivan with the windows down when we're at the stoplight, right? Okay, that's not what God's talking about. Some of us, we might try to leave a sit with me card in the stall somewhere, okay? Gross. Don't do that. Some of us, you know, we might want to flash our our vintage WWJD bracelet when we're checking out at Trader Joe's, okay? Maybe that'll do it. No, so not that. It doesn't even mean Instagramming yourself at a coffee shop reading your Bible, which ironically took longer for you to do than you actually spent reading God's Word. That's not what God's talking about. He's saying there ultimately has to be a time when we verbalize the message, when we share it with other people, when we preach it, Because we see here in Romans 10, we say, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Amen. How does that happen, though? How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Here's what some of us need to hear today. We cannot depend on our pastors to be the only ones to share the gospel with others. Because what studies are finding is that more and more Americans are not willing to step foot in a church for any reason whatsoever. And so we can't count on our pastors being the ones to share it. But here's what we can count on. They may not step foot in our church, but they're willing to step foot in our homes. They're willing to grab a coffee with us. They're willing to grab a meal. They're willing to hang out with us. And so what God is inviting us to do is to start seeing ourselves as the primary access point for people to be able to see, to hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays that we would be united around the message, but Jesus also prays that we would have unity as a church. Jesus prays that we would have unity as a church because the mission is moved through a message, but that message is proved by our unity. And we see this here in verse 21. Jesus says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. It's this language of unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jump down to 23. I in them and you in me, that they may all be perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Guys, Christianity is filled with all kinds of unbelievable claims. Jesus says that he is the son of God. Jesus says that he died and was raised to life again. He says that he can actually save us from our sins. And he could have chosen any way to prove that those things are true. He could have said, you know what, instead of going to heaven, I'm just going to stay here. So that way, if you guys ever have a question, you can just fly over to me and I can just answer those things for you. And you'll be convinced. He could have done that. He could have chosen to divinely write 
John 3.16 in the sky for us and just kept it there so that if we ever had a question, we can look up and say, oh yeah, it must be true. But he didn't do any of those things. The way that Jesus chose to prove his message, to prove that he is who he says he was, is through the unity of the church. And that's an amazing thing that he invites us to be part of such an incredible task. But it's also weighty, is it not? Because unless the world sees an inexplicably loving and compelling unity in the church, then they are never going to believe the message that we share. We may be the best church when it comes to being united around the message, but if we are not living it out in our communities, no one will believe. Because it's a hard sales pitch to say, hey, we hate each other. We don't get along. You might hate being with us, but would you like to join us? right? Who wants to take you up on that? Because if a church does not prove the message through their unity, it makes the church look bad to the lost. And not only that, it makes Jesus look bad to the lost. And so it's a weighty task that we are called to. But here's the good news. Jesus would not be telling us to do this if it were not possible. If it were not possible to be united in this kind of way, he would never be praying for it. He would never be calling us to that. And that may be good news for you on a a bunch of different levels for Christianity because we come across things that are hard all the time in God's word and we're like, how could I ever possibly do that? But Jesus never calls you to something that he is not going to empower you to be able to do ultimately. And so we can have hope as a church that this kind of unity is possible. But we can also have hope because we can look down the road and we can see in our past that God has done this throughout the ages in the church and he has used it to move the message and bring all kinds of people to himself. The early church got off the ground in large part because of its loving unity with one another. And so what I want to do is just look at what does that look like? What has that been in the church so that we can see a picture of what unity can be that God is calling us to, but also have hope that if it was possible for them, then it must be possible for us as well. And so we see this in the early church that they were united around all people. They were united by sharing their lives with all people. And that was countercultural to the world because the world says things like, hey, birds of a feather flock together. All people like each other should just clump up with one another. But what the gospel says, what Jesus said, what Christianity says is that Jesus died for all kinds of people, and he brings them together as one. And that's why when the world looked at the early church, they saw people from all different kinds of backgrounds coming together as one, and they were blown away by it. They didn't know what to do with it. And what would it look like for that to happen in Winston-Salem, for the world to look in this church and to see all kinds of people united together as one. They can look at people sitting next to each other and see, man, just loving and compelling relationships. What if they saw those kinds of relationships between men and women, between young people and old people, between rich and poor, between the racial majority and the racial minority, between old members and new members? Man, what if we could even do that between Duke and UNC fans, all right? If we could do that as a church, the world wouldn't know what to do with it. They're drawn to that kind of unity. And so we see that in the early church, but not only were they united with all people, they were united in sharing their possessions with one another. I love being a dad. I have two little girls, they're one and two. 
But I can tell you, nothing is harder in my job than trying to convince toddlers to share with each other, right? It is near impossible. And you know, it's, it's similar for us as adults too. We don't love sharing our things. But what we see in Acts 4 is something completely radical. We see the early church coming together and they see the needs of people. And what do they do? They sell their homes. They sell, they sell their possessions. They have garage sales for each other to help meet the needs that they see in one another. What would it look like for you to be drastically open-handed with the possessions that God has given you? What would that look like? For me, my first taste of that was back in college when I was just a freshman. I didn't have a car. I needed a ride. And so I went to my friend Greg and said, hey, man, can you give me, can you give me a ride? And what does he do? He throws me the keys. He says, it's God's car anyway. That is a picture of drastic open-handedness with the possessions God has given us. What would it look like if the church did that? But not only with ourselves, but with the people outside of the church as well. It would blow people away. And I know this because in the fourth century, the Roman emperor Julian wrote this about the church. He said, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers. It's a scandal that there's not a single Christian who is a beggar and that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. While those who belong to us keep looking in vain for us to help them in ways that we should be rendering them service. You see, When the world saw that kind of generosity flowing back and forth between brothers and sisters in Christ, they didn't know how to explain it. And so we unite by sharing our possessions, but we also unite by sharing our problems. In Galatians 6, God commands the church, bear one another's burdens. And what that means to bear one another's burdens is that we press into people. We pursue them when they are going through hard times. When they are dealing with problems and difficulty and challenges, We press into it instead of when it gets too hard, when it gets too challenging, we just walk away or we ghost people. That's not what unity looks like. Jesus is saying, what would it look like if you pressed into the people that needed you the most? What would it look like if you pursued the people who were walking through heavy difficulties? Because that's what it means to be one That's what it means to be united, that we see when people have problems and struggles, there are problems and struggles as well. When one of us is in pain, then we're all in pain as well. And so we share with one another in our problems. That's a way that we demonstrate unity. We also demonstrate unity when we share the truth with one another. And that's a radical idea. The fact that there can be truth and you can apply it to someone else, right? You know, mostly what we're listening to is we're being influenced by modern theologians like Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars. And they say, hey, you are perfect the way you are. You were born this way. And if you don't like what people have to say about you, you just shake it off. Okay? That's, that's different than what we're called to do. We believe that there's truth. And the most loving thing that we can actually do for somebody is to be able to go to them in love and say, you are broken. This is where I see sin in your life. This is where you need Jesus Christ. And we are loving one another enough to speak that truth to one another. Do you have that kind of person in your life? Do you have people around you that love you enough to share the truth with you? Are you loving enough to do that for other people? Because that's what unity looks like. And we also see unity in the early church when they shared in one another's failures. 
They shared in one another's failures. And when you become a failure in this world, here's what happens. You are cast to the outside. And you can just go on the news any single day and you can see new and new examples of that. But what the church does differently is we do not expel failure. We invite it in. Because a beautiful picture of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was killing Christians. And the same people who lost loved ones and the same people who were being persecuted themselves are the same people that invited and brought Paul in. Because we can bring in failure and we can turn it into wisdom. And so we don't expel failure, we reconcile. That's what it means to be united as a church. And maybe here's an invitation for you. Who do you need to be reconciled with today? Who is it that you need to finally forgive? Who is it that you need to go after and ask for forgiveness for the sake of unity? Because that's what it looks like to be a united church, all of these things. And when the world saw this happening in the early church, they were drawn to it and Christianity exploded. And in the same way, if we were able to live out this kind of unity, Winston-Salem would be drawn to it and we would see the lostness decrease in this city because that's what this kind of unity does. And how does it do that? We see the answer in verse 22 when Jesus says this. Why is the world drawn to this? It's because, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus is saying, the glory, God, that you have given me, I now give to the church. And here's what Jesus did when he walked on this earth, is he showed people God's glory, meaning he showed them who God is and what he's like. And people were drawn to that. And when Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us that job to show people God's glory. This is who God is. This is what he's like. And people respond to that. So that's why if we were united around all people, if we were united in such a way that we shared our lives with all people, what we would be doing is we will be pointing people to a God who gave his life for all people. If we were united in such a way that we shared our possessions with one another and people saw that, it would be pointing them to a God who gave away everything he ever had for us to meet our greatest needs. If we're united together and we share in one another's problems, if we pursue one another, we're pointing people to a God who loved and pursued us in our problems. It didn't matter how big of a train wreck he was, he came after us and he sought us. When we come together and we are united in sharing truth, we're pointing them to a God who is truth, who loves us enough to say, you are not okay where you are, but I can come in and I can make you holy and I can give you purpose in your life. When we're united and we come together and we share our failures, we point people to a God who loves failures, just like you and me. And it doesn't matter how far you've run, it doesn't matter what you've done, God is saying, I love you so much, I want to reconcile with you. And so we demonstrate God's glory to people, and people respond. They say, I can believe that Jesus is who he says he was because I see it in you. That's the power of unity. That is what God is inviting us into, is it moves the mission. It proves the mission. And so how can we do this as a church? What would this look like for us practically? I think some of the easiest ways that we can do that is when we gather and when we scatter. Because unity is something that we invite people to come and see. And when we gather here on Sunday mornings, it's an opportunity to invite people in and they can see people together, 
all kinds of people sharing in their problems, loving one another, relating to one another. It doesn't matter how different they are. And people can say, there has to be some exclamation for this. There has to be something bigger that's drawing these folks together. And that's what unity demonstrates. It shows them God who can bring people to one another. And so it's something that we can invite people to come and see, but unity is also something that we go and we show. Unity is something that's portable. People don't even have to come somewhere. We can just take it to them. That's what we see our community groups doing. That's why we love having people in community because it gives people an opportunity to take this out all throughout our city for people to see. And people can be drawn to that. We have some beautiful examples of that here. As a community group pastor, I hear this all the time, just stories of how God is using community groups to draw people in. And I just want to give you a couple examples of what that looks like. This kind of unity entices the lost. This kind of unity will entice the lost. And a beautiful picture of this was a community group over the last couple of months when we were in the series on 1 Peter. They were coming together to talk about struggles. And one of the community group members invited a neighbor to come in and just sit in with that. And as they talked about struggles, this group had been through a lot. And the neighbors got a picture of how they loved and cared for and walked with one another during those times. And the neighbor came up to the community group leader after that time was over and said, hey, can I ask you a question? The community group leader said, yeah, of course. The neighbor said, are you guys for real? Are you guys for real? Is this what you guys are actually like? Because if it is, I want to tell you something. It is beautiful. Because the world, when they see that, they're drawn to it. That's how God designed it, is to entice the lost. But this kind of unity also exposes the lost. We live in a city where a lot of people believe that they are Christians when they're actually not. And God can use this kind of unity to expose belief that is not real. One of our own staff members, I was getting to talk with him and his story a little bit this week, and he says, that's how I came to Christ. I went to college, and I was not a Christian. I surrounded myself with this kind of unity where people loved and challenged and cared for one another, and the more and more I hung around it, the more I realized, that's not me. What they have, I do not have. And so it exposed the, the belief that he thought he had. He knew that it wasn't true because he saw the real thing in action. And so it entices the lost, but it also exposes the lost. And so here's the call for you. If you are in a community group, I challenge you with this. You need to expect more. You need to expect more about what God can do in and through you and your community. What would it look like if God used the unity that you have with one another to draw one person, just one person to be baptized this year? If all 46 of our groups did that, This city would not have an explanation. And so let us use this unity as a weapon for the mission of God to see people come to Christ. And so hopefully you get a beautiful vision. This is what could be. This is what unity could be. It's what God's calling us to. But the bigger question over all of this is how do we actually get it? If this is a picture of what unity could be, how can we actually live this out with one another? What the world says is that, hey, the the problem is outside of you, but the solution is inside of you, right? The world say, hey, you have everything that it takes to be able to make this happen. But if that were true, why are we so divided as we are right now? If we already had the answer inside of us, if we had 
the power to do this on our own. Why, is, why are we even talking about this today? It's because we know that's not true, and Jesus knows that it's not true. The answer is not inside of us. The problem is inside of us, but the solution is outside of us. And so the last thing that Jesus prays for us, the last thing Jesus prays for his church is the answer that we need. It's the source of where unity truly comes from. Jesus prays for the church that we would have union with God. The last thing that Jesus prays for us is that we would have union with God. Because the only way we can experience unity as a church is if we first, is if we first have a personal relationship with him. And so we can go back to God, and we know that we can find unity there because God is the creator of unity. God is unity. God has existed for all of eternity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what we call the Trinity, living forever in perfect unity. And he created us to be able to do the same thing. Well, if we were created for something, if it should be natural for us, then why do we struggle with it? Why is it such a hard thing? And the simple answer is this, it's because of sin. The reason you are not experiencing unity in your life is because you are a sinner. And it's usually because of one of two things. It's either your pride or it's your selfishness. Those are the two things that are the greatest dividers of unity that God is calling us to. Because pride says that you are awesome. You are great. You want to feel good about yourself. And so what pride does is it constantly makes you compare and contrast yourself to other people. How could you possibly have unity if that's what you are doing? If you are always pairing yourself up against other people, it's not possible. And selfishness does the same thing because selfishness is all about me. How can it possibly be about us when all you think about is me? It doesn't allow you to give away the very things that makes unity possible, like forgiveness and grace and mercy to other people. And so when you have pride and selfishness, all you have in your life are barriers that keep you from experiencing what you were always meant to experience. And so what's the answer? How do we get back to what we were made to experience and what we were made to live out? And the answer is in verse 23, and I just want to look at the first three words because the answer is right there from Jesus Christ. He prays this, I in them. Because Jesus knows the only way that we can experience unity is if we have God in us. And what I'm talking about is that we have to become Christians. And I just want to acknowledge, I know that there are probably people here today who would firmly say that I am not a Christian. We may have people here that say, I actually don't know what I believe. And here's what I want to tell you guys today. You cannot, per, you cannot begin to experience this kind of unity if you don't first have a relationship with God. And you might disagree with me. You might say, of course I can experience unity. But I would tell you this, you can't, at least not in the way that Jesus is talking about here. You may think you're experiencing unity, but one of three things is probably happening. Number one, you're probably faking it. You may have the appearances that you are united with other people, but what you are in private does not match what you, what you are in public does not match what you are in private. We all know what, it's look like to, what it looks like to put up a facade, to fake it. And so you might be experiencing that. You may be doing it, but you're doing it for all the wrong motives. I remember being at a unity event in college, and one of the leaders stood next to me and said, I can't wait to put this on my resume. They're going to love it. 
And so we do things, but we do it for all the wrong motives. We're self-serving. And we also might pursue it, but we might be pursuing it without a purpose. Like we said at the beginning of our time together, unity doesn't exist for unity's sake. And so if there's ultimately not an eternal purpose that's attached to it, then you're wasting your time. And so if you are experiencing this, if your sin is getting in the way, you are forever going to be on the outside. And the only way that you can taste something and experience something that's true, something that's lasting, something that's meaningful, is if we have transformation from the inside out. And the way that this happens is through the gospel. One of the reasons that Jesus went to the cross is because the cross is what makes unity attainable. Because what the cross does, if we stand and we look at the cross and look at Jesus Christ there for us, here's what our pride and our selfishness does. It falls flat. Because we can't look at the cross and think, man, I'm awesome. You can't look at the cross and say, man, God thinks I am great. Because we see him hanging there with our sins on him. And not only that, we see him there with our sins and everybody else's. The cross levels the playing field. We can't feel better than anybody else because Jesus died for all of our sins. And what that allows us to do is say, man, if God loves me that much, he must be able to love other people. And certainly I can love them the same way. And so it tears down our pride. It also tears down our selfishness because when we look at the cross, we see a God who gave everything away for us. If he can be generous with his life and all that he had, how can I not be generous with my life for him and for other people too? Ephesians 2 says that the cross tore down the dividing walls of hostility. Any walls that our sin builds up between us and God and us and other people, the cross tears down. They cannot stand. And that's good news because typically your pride and your selfishness are the very things that have kept you from a relationship with God in the first place. And so Jesus died so that you could know union with him, so that you could experience this deep relationship. And that's for you if you are not a Christian today. But what about you if you are a Christian? Will you know that experiencing this union with God and unity with other people, it's just as hard for us. And so what's the answer for us? Well, it's the same thing. Jesus says, Christian, if you are divided because of these things, you need to go back to my cross over and over and over and over because it has the same effect on us. It tears down any of the pride or selfishness that creeps into our life. And we know that when we have a God that loves us that much, it enables us to love and draw near to him. And the truth is that we become what we behold The more time you spend at the foot of the cross looking up at him and looking at what Jesus Christ has done for you, the more you are going to look like him in your own life. When you realize and you really truly grasp what Christ has done, you are willing to extend that to other people as well. Tim Keller says this. He says, we have to rub our nose in the cross every day because you will never completely love until you know that you are loved completely. So as we close, I just want to read the last verses of this chapter for us because it shows us God's heart for us and what all of this has been about. In 24, it says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 
I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus says that the ultimate goal of our unity is this. We get God. Everything about unity is always leading to this, that ultimately one day we will have God and we will be with him forever. That's Jesus' greatest desire for us, to be with him forever so that one day we will see his glory. We only get to see it in part, but one day we will see it in full. One day we will fully know God and one day we will know what it is like to be perfectly loved by God. And so we get a taste of that today, but one day we have a hope that we will taste it in full. But let us not be satisfied with that, just knowing that in the end we will get this. The invitation for us today is be united with God so that we can be united around his word, the message and the power of salvation, that we would be united with one another so that more and more people can taste and experience this with us in eternity. So as we close our series on prayer, I just want us to take some time and respond in prayer to God as a response to what he's saying to us in our words. So you can bow your head, you can close your eyes, and let's just go to him. And if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you'd say, I'm not a Christian. Here's something that maybe that you could pray in response to God today. You just say something like this, God blank has kept me from seeking union with you as my Father, my Lord, and my Savior. And what is the thing that's kept you from a relationship with God, from surrendering your life to him? Would you give that over to him? For the Christian, the believers here, you can pray something like, God blank has kept me from experiencing union with you, with my life. What is the thing that's gotten in the way of your relationship with him that's keeping you at a distance? Would you repent of that thing and believe that he has better for you? All of us can pray this, God, help me to seek unity with blank. And who's the person that you need to seek forgiveness from, that you need to forgive, that you need to be reconciled with? For the sake of unity, who do you need to do that with? And for all of us, again, God, would you use the unity I have with my church community to reach blank? Who is that person in your mind right now? Who is the person that's far from God but close to you? How could God be inviting this church unity to be a picture of Jesus Christ? Father, we love you. We thank you for this word and we pray desperately that we would each be united with you. That's the greatest thing, Lord, is to know and experience a relationship with you. But would you unite us with you so that we can have unity as a church, that we would be united around a message for your name and for your glory. Do all these things and more. In your name, amen.